book of Yirmiyahu, someone just remarked to me outside that, it's a very depressing book. Well, it is, <laughs> yeah. it is a depressing book. We can't do anything about that. But there are points of light. And I'm actually just, I just was approached by 929. You know, I had done the, all the Chumash and the Shmuel and Malachim. So I agreed, the moment of weakness, that to do Yirmiyahu and Yechesko. It's 100 chapters. Wow. Not something that I can do. You know, the other stuff I can do in my sleep. But Yirmiyahu and Yechesko, I actually have to do some work. So, But it's good because you learn all the new things. And, so I'm actually going through Yirmiyahu now, trying to prepare this. In any event, so I'm reading all of Yirmiyahu over again. And there's some themes that appear throughout Yirmiyahu. They come up constantly, appearing and reappearing. And there's a lot of repetition, but there's always nuances and changes. I noticed that in Yirmiyahu, we'll come to this, not today, we'll come to this. And one of the themes of Yirmiyahu that constantly comes up over and over again it's a very interesting question. You know, he writes, we saw this even last week, he writes in the beginning, and it comes up several times, that there are different groups within the society, and he attacks all the groups. He attacks the king, he attacks the, called the sarim, the various officers, he attacks the priests, and he attacks, and what's interesting, he attacks the prophets. And one of the themes of this book is that there are many other prophets outside of Yirmiyahu. Most of the prophets, almost all of them, are prophesying in God's name exactly the opposite of what Yirmiyahu says. Yirmiyahu says, basically in the book, his main point is that you have to make peace with the king of Babel, the Babylon. They are the reigning country in the world. And Israel and all the other nations, not just Israel, but all the nations, have to accept the fact that bubbles in control. He also says at different points in the book, not forever, 70 years. In 70 years you come back, but for the time being, God's will is that you don't oppose Babel, accept it, <coughs> don't fight them, and you'll be okay. If you accept Babel, you'll be able to live in peace. That's one of his points. The second point is that the Jews who are in Babel already, because we have to remember that the Exile to Babel takes place in two stages. The first stage takes place earlier. <coughs> and that's the, uh, the the elite of society, the army officers, these craftsmen, etc. Part of the royalty, they're exiled to Babel. And but the what five ninety eight that sounds right. Harashvah and then later on. 12 years later, you have the siege and destruction, 10, 12 years later. So he also was prophesying to the Jews in Babel. Yermiel says to the Jews in Babel, understand this is where you're going to be, make peace, settle into society, be members of society. So they're two different prophecies. And furthermore, that in the first, uh, the first uh, defeat of the Jews, when the craftsmen of exile, Pieces of the temple are also taken to, to Babel. And the Yermiel says they're going to stay in Babel, and if you don't make peace with Babel, the rest is going to go there too. So you better make peace. That's his prophecy. And the other prophets are saying, on the contrary, in a couple of years from now, it's all going to be returned. The king's going to come back. We're going to have our own society. So this runs through the entire book, this constant 
fight between Yermio on one hand and the prophets on the other hand. And the book raises at several different points, hopefully you see this, at several different points, it raises the question about how do you know who's a real prophet? How do you really, how can you tell? It's a question that the Chumash raises. The problem is that what the Chumash says is very difficult to understand. So the book of Yermiyot addresses that. We've already seen, and we'll see a lot more, that the book of Yermiyot, a lot of the language of Yermiyot is parallel to what we read in Sefer Dvarim, a lot of it. So it, that was something very interesting to look at. And already in the beginning, he talks about the prophets or the false prophets, etc. It's a theme that runs through the book for really many, many chapters to deal with this question. Hopefully we'll have a chance to take a look at that. So this morning, I just wanted to go back for a moment to what we saw last time, and then to pick up with chapter seven. We'll jump around. We're gonna, some, some of the stuff we skip, we'll, we'll go back to later. Uh, it is true that the first 24 chapters or so, I mean, there's some variation. It's not just boring, but there is a lot of repetition, which is probably intentional not an accident. You, certain phrases appear many times, the same phrase. And that's probably part of his style in terms of speaking to the people. The repetition has a certain power to it. I wanted to begin with, get my glasses on here, and uh, <coughs> let me find this pasuk here. Why am I not fighting this now? For a second, it's yeah. It talks about the ark. The ark. A R K. The R O. Just a couple of two characters. I was in Perry Kimmel for some strange reason. I'm not seeing it. I got it, yeah. It's chapter three, right? So, in this, chapter three, verse number. Well, last week we discussed the verb Rashuv. Shuvu Balim Shovavim Nu Mashem is chapter three, verse number 14. Now, he then talks about. Um, it's not all gloomy. He talks about the potential future in verse 15 of chapter 3. At that point, I will send Roim our shepherds. It's another theme that runs through the book. Shepherds, leaders, according to my own heart, says God. They will pass you with knowledge and with skill. Now in verse 16, in those days, when you increase, 
and you settle into the land, lo aron they will not say anymore the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, below Yif Kodu, below they're not going to mention the Ark of God. They're not going to even think about the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. They're not going to think about that. But at that time, they will call Jerusalem God's seat. And all the nations will come to God. It's a messianic vision. We've seen this elsewhere. Yishayahu has this idea of the whole world coming to Jerusalem. They will not follow anymore their evil hearts or evil inclinations. Shirirut libam, I didn't count up the number of times, is a phrase that appears many, many times in Yirmiyo, and it appears in the Chumash, in Sefer Devarim as well. It's another one of those words in the book of Devarim that is constantly being uh, mentioned in the book of Yirmiyo. But what does it mean? It's very striking that in those days, this vision in the future, Messiah vision, they won't mention the Ark. It's very strange, like the actually. The Ark of the Covenant, it says. I won't breathe Hashem. They won't mention the Ark of the Covenant. So I want to say something about not mentioning the Ark of the Covenant, which is very much, I think, uh, we find it in, in one place, and we find it in a, in a second place as well, I think. It goes back to a different story. And I think it raises a very interesting question. About, about ritual and about sacred objects. The particular uh, story that I had in mind, you know, many things go back to the book of Shmuel, as we know, of course. So in the book of Shmuel, the Ark plays a very central role. In fact, the book of Shmuel begins, actually, pretty much at the very beginning of the book. As we all know, it talks about the battle Israel is fighting the Philistines, which they're the main enemy in Shmuel. And it says that they went to war against the Philistines and they lost the battle. They lose the battle. Then they say to themselves, why did we lose the battle? Why did we lose the battle? Let's bring the ark into the, into the battle. Let's bring the ark into the battle and we will, we will be victorious. So they sent for the ark, which is in Shiloh, and they bring the ark into battle. It's carried by, we are told, Chafni and Pinchas. Those are the two scoundrels that run Shiloh. They know God, God, God hates them. And they're the ones that are carrying the ark into, into the battle. Now the question is, what, why do they, what, what is their thinking of bringing the ark into the battle? So in, my, in the book I'm writing on Shmuel, which hopefully will be finished, I'm hopefully in the next month or two, and we got to get it published. Uh, so I, I raised two, two options as to what the thinking is about the Ark. One, one way to see it is that the thinking of the Ark is this magical object. If you bring the Ark into battle, so, so, so today, if you bring the Ark into battle, then God's in the battle. You have God with you. If you had God with you, you can't lose, right? <clears throat> so the idea is the Ark is seeing some, the Ark is something not as a means to an end, but as an end in, unto itself. And that's the kind of thinking that is, not, you know, totally unacceptable. 
And in point of fact, they, it doesn't work. In point of fact, they lose the battle and they also lose the ark. That's one approach that, that, that it could be. So it's one possibility that the thinking about the ark, they attach to the ark of significance in and of itself, not just as a symbol, but in and of itself, it has a magical power to it. That's one possibility. The other possibility, which is equally plausible, I think, is that they're thinking, thinking something else. They're thinking that once you bring the ark into the battlefield and the ark represents God, they're putting God in a, in a position where God can't afford to lose. We know already from the Chumash, sometimes Moshe says to God, listen, you can't destroy the people. It's bad for your reputation. You know, that's Moshe's, Moshe's argument, among other arguments. So the thinking is, let's bring the ark into battle. And this way, God will not permit us to lose because if, God, if we lose the battle, it will be a chil Hashem because the ark will be captured. And the enemy will understand and will think that they defeated God. That's a different option. In point of fact, whichever of these two options we presume, I'm not sure they're contradictory. <coughs> the ark is in fact captured. And in fact, by the way, that's exactly what the Philistines think. Exactly. The Philistines assume that they have defeated God. And they place the ark in front of their own idol, Dagon, and they uh, place the ark as if, as if to say, our God is better than your God. And when they wake up the next morning and following mornings, the Dagon is basically broken into pieces. So that, in other words, the point is, you can't force God's hand. You can't assume that you can control God. You can't control God. And uh, God goes wherever God wishes to go. God does not wish to stay with the Israelites. God is perfectly happy to go amongst the Philistines. And when they mistreat the ark, God is perfectly happy to leave the Philistines, have the Philistines send God back. And when they send the ark back to the field of Beit Shemesh in chapter, in chapter 7, chapter 6, and they look at the ark in Beit Shemesh, and then there's a plague. And then the ark gets moved from Beit Shemesh to Kiryat Yarim. Those are the first several uh, the first several chapters of so that's where we encounter the ark. Now what's interesting is I mentioned all this because of what follows in Shmuel in chapter seven. In chapter seven, by the time chapter seven rolls around, so the ark is in a place called Kiryat Yarim. So it's not far from Beit Shemesh. And Kiryat Yarim, a yar is a forest. A forest in the in the Torah is a place where um, you can't actually see what's going on. If you ever go to a really thick forest, you can barely see anything there, you know? The example in the Chumash of killing by accident is when someone goes into the forest, into the yard, you can't actually see. So it's chopping wood and either the handle of the ax or the wood kills somebody. That's the example of the Chumash of accidental you know, killing by accident, you go to the city of refuge. So Kiryat Yarim means the ark, as opposed to Beit Shemesh, the sun, right? Means it's an open place and it's clear. And the other place is the place which is not clear, you can't really see. So the ark is placed, and Kiryat Yarim means the ark is shunted aside. It's not in the public view, it's set aside, it's being guarded separately, it's not part of the general community. So it says in the book of Shmuel, 
the following. What? It's part of it's, it's protection, and part of it is it's, it's in contrast to Beit Shemesh. Part of it is it's not on public display. The ark is the ark is is basically enclosed. The ark is covered up. That is true, by the way. Leaving this out for a moment, that in general, it's true of the ark. That or what's that? The ark, but let's say the Torah. The Torah basically is covered. The Torah actually is is, is, is secluded. S sacred things get covered, and they're not seen. Actually, sacred things are not are not seen. For you have all your own. The priests are not supposed to look at the vessels of the ark of the Mishkan. When it's when it, when they're about to move them, they're not supposed to just come and look at them. Kivarat Kodesh, the Rabban says when they're when they're not covered. Or they'll die. So in other words, the sacred has to be covered, can't be exposed. That's true in general. But what I wanted to mention was that that's chapter six, this whole business with the ark. And then the, the beginning of chapter seven in Shmuel, for those who have it, the beginning it says they went, the people of Kiyat Yarim, they took this ark. And they placed in the house of Abinadav and his son Elazar, they uh, appointed to guard the ark to protect it. There is a protection. And then it says the following verse in chapter 7 of Shmuel. So from the time the ark resides in Kiryat Yarim, many years passed. Vayu Asrim Shana was twenty years. Vayinahu Kabeit Yisrael Acharei Hashem, and all of Israel Vayinahu, the he is like crying or he literally like yearning, and all of Israel yearned for God. The he bechit tamurim, right? Have it later on in Yibiyot. So the word the he appears many times. Suri cites the verse later on in chapter 31. Rachel crying for her children, the bitter cry. So it's a very interesting verse. I've spoken about this many, many times in the past. And what it sounds like is the yearning for God is a function of the fact that there's no ark. As long as the ark is around, people don't yearn for God because they think they have God. Because they mistakenly think if we have the rituals and the symbols, then we have God. So in order for the people to yearn for God, what it sounds like actually, is that the ark has to be shut to the side for a very long time. It says 20 years. After half a generation, after 20 years, when the people don't have an ark, suddenly they yearn, they turn to God. And the next verse, Mayom Shmuel. The verse is very interesting. If you turn to God with all your heart, then remove all the other foreign gods. Serve God alone. Serve God fully with your heart. Remove all of the foreign gods. And then we can have a connection to God. And what precipitates all of this is the fact that there's no ark. I find that very striking. 
I mentioned as a side point, since I mentioned the book of Shmuel, I often do mention the book of Shmuel, and that is one of the interesting disputes, actually, amongst the scholars in relationship to Sefer Shmuel, is to what extent the book of Shmuel can be seen as what the scholars like to call the work of the, uh, of the uh, Deuteronomist. The assumption very much out there amongst many of the Bible critics, scholars of a century ago and to this very day, they assume that the book of Dvarim and the books that follow, which are the Nebiyam Rishonim, Yeshua, Shoftim, Shmuel, and Barachim, and all of these books are of one piece with Sefer Dvarim. That's the assumption they make. And the one who, there was a book by a guy named Robert Polson many years ago, Moses and the, and the Deuteronomist, the three-part book, and he reads all of Sefer Shmuel in light of what he perceives to be the, the, uh, the Deuteronomist. He sees that in the book there's two voices. There's the voice of the narrator, A, and there's the voice of the Deuteronomist, which he reads it at every turn. In response to Polson's work, which has some very interesting pieces to it, but in my view, it's has some terrible readings, but that's a separate question. Very mistaken readings. But in response to him, recently, over the last 10, 15 years, is the work of a bunch of people who say that we don't really see a Deuteronomist in the book of Shmuel altogether. Outside of a couple of places, we don't see it at all. Many people have argued that, chiefly Robert, Robert Alter in his commentary on Shmuel makes that point. And the other way, they work usually one follows the next, like, you know, like little, why the fuck? So anyway, that's the way it works there. The orthodoxies of the academy. Now I'll tell you what I think about it. Um, I didn't say it's written by him. I'd say it's, it's related. It has, it's very much related, which makes total sense because the book of Devarim is all about predict the end of Devarim. <coughs> no, there's no question. That the book of Yermio is citing or playing off much of Sefer Dvarim, I think that, can't argue with that, I think that's true. I would say that I don't see it as the same person writing it necessarily, because the Book of Yermio has many allusions to it, but amongst them, there are many references to Sefer Dvarim. And the point I want to make one simple point about this question about the so-called Deuteronomist is this. I don't think it's true that the themes of Sefer Dvarim are front and center in Sefer Shmuel. I don't think that's true. But I also don't think it's true that we can just dismiss the so-called Deuteronomist. I think the thinking of Sefer Dvarim does appear from time to time in Sefer Shmuel. And I'll tell you one place where I think it appears very strongly. And that is in the person of Shmuel himself, who we know is related to Moshe. And that what he says over here in this Pasuk actually strikes me as Sefer Devarim front and center. I don't mean, I don't care who wrote it, it's relevant, but the idea of it, he makes two points. Is if in fact he says you want to connect to God, he makes two points. One is you have to turn to God with all your heart. That's a Devarim theme. That's his, only a Sefer Devarim theme, the idea of the internal state of the person. Is a phrase that appears several times in Sefer Dvarim. And the second point he makes is not about the word lave, 
about the, about the word Luvad. Eino Milvado. That's the same for Dvarim theme. In other words, there may be other forces out there. There may be other powers out there. Who knows what? Maybe there are other gods out there. That's for, that's for the non-Jews. But for you, for Israel, we have only one God. Asher Chalak Hashem, God, all the heavens and the stars, that's for the non-Jews. But for you, that's not for you. Tamim Tiyam Hashem Elokecha, you have only one God. Eidol Milvado, Shema Yisra Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. Russ is only one. There's nobody else. That's a safe Dvarim theme. So actually, over here in this Pasuk, I think, Shmuel represents this idea of serving God with your heart and serving God only. It's actually fanatical about that. And that is a Dvarim theme. And what's interesting is that he puts it in terms of removing the foreign gods from your midst, he says, after 20 years, follows upon removing the art from your midst. Very striking. So I was thinking to myself that this idea that the ark actually could, be, could become problematic. It doesn't have to become problematic, but it could actually be an obstacle to true, to true connection to God that Shmuel, the book of Shmuel is not the first to suggest this, but we actually have it someplace else even more striking. And that is in the story where Moshe actually comes down the mountain after the after he's up the top of the mountain to receive the the uh, the tablets, which are written by the hand of God, and they're going to be placed inside the ark. That's where you put the right. Luchot Tabrit comes down the mountain, and he's God said ready to Moshe on the mountain that the people have sinned, they're strayed, and all that. So. Let me destroy them. I'll make you a nation. Moshe argues for us. God agrees. Then he comes down the mountain. And when he comes down the mountain, carrying these luchot, which are described as the work of God, and he sees the people dancing around the golden calf. He says, Moshe got angry. He took the luchot and he breaks them. He breaks them. And that story is repeated also in Sefer Dvarim in the variation. He breaks the luchot. So the Torah never tells us why he breaks the Luchot. Did he do it just a fit of anger? Maybe. Or is it actually more than that? Clearly it's a story of unbelievable power. To actually break God's tablets. God, the tablets are the tablets of God, it says. The writing is God's writing. It's like Sefer Torah multiplied by a thousand. It's like taking a Sefer Torah and smashing it. Who would do such a thing? And this is worse. This is the Luchot. But the point of it is, I think, that the lesson Moshe is teaching us is that in that context, the people dancing around the Egel, if I give them the Luchot, it'll be actually worse because the Luchot, will, obviously, the people are attracted to the symbols. They don't see, they didn't start as a rejection of God. It starts as Moshe's missing, we need a connection. So he realizes, Moshe, that if I give them the Luchot, it'll be just be another idol, be another angel. So he actually smashes the Luchot, which is a very powerful teaching. And that actually is what you have in the book of Shmuel in a similar fashion, not about the Luchot, but about the Aron, which houses the Luchot. And that when Yirmiyah was saying that in those days they won't say Aron Hashem, Aron Brit Hashem, it doesn't necessarily mean 
that the ark is, I mean, it's very striking, actually. But what he's saying is that there's a danger if you fixate on the ark or on the rituals or on the symbols, you could actually lose the main point. That the purpose of all these things is to connect you to God. But if they serve as a barrier, which they can do, then it's better, it's better to shut them aside. So you have it in the Book of Shmuel, put it in Kiryat Yarim, and you have it in the Chumash, or most striking, where Moshe actually smashes the Luchot. That's what Yerbiel is saying in our chapter, chapter three. In those days, they won't talk about the Ark, but rather in those days, they'll come to, to God's place. The whole world will come, actually. That's his messianic vision, very similar to what we have in Yeshayahu, that the Micha has it as well. And there's a messianic vision of the world gathering to God. And he, he, he suggests that it's possible that the ark itself is an impediment. That I think is very striking. Okay, yes, one of the comments. Yes, sure. Well, well, it, doesn't, it doesn't run in the same, it doesn't run in the same direction as your, what you just said about Moshe smashing the Luchon. Yeah. It runs in the opposite direction, actually. The, the theory that the, that the construction of the temple had to do only with the golden calf. That's Rashi. Yeah. So it's, but right. It, but it, in that regard, you can understand well why Yermia is saying, we're not going to need that anymore because God is going to fix your heart from the temptation of idolatry. That is true. And actually, Tasha got a very important point in the book of Yermia, which we'll hopefully get to someday. It is true. And in the book of Yermiah, there's a statement that there'll be a new Torah written. And the Torah that will be written is not written on a piece of parchment. It's written on your hearts. That is true. That we haven't said for Yermiah. The Christians like that idea, by the way. But the fact of the matter is, uh, it's a very powerful idea. That, you know, basically, to write the Torah in your heart. And that's, I mean, we, we, we can discuss that well, someday when we get to that, this idea of uh, of writing the Torah on your heart, because it strikes me that, just a small point, just to relate to what you, you say, that uh, that the goal, I think, one way to understand the goal of, the goal of it, the goal of these rituals and all these laws and all of that, the goal is to enable us to understand the, the, the deep teachings so that we can apply them in all situations in our life. The truth of the matter is there's no shulchan oruch for everything you do in your life. Certainly there's no shulchan oruch for the big decisions in life. So we are basically our, our, our autonomous people, right? So the point is, <clears throat> but the autonomous decisions that we make should be grounded in something else. That the goal of the Torah and all the set of practices is to ingrain in us a kind of mentality that enables us to make our own decisions out of which are which are connected to or, or related to or coming out of the deep teachings of the Torah. So that extent, I think it's certainly true, right? I mean, it's sort of a, you have it at the this week's parasha, the Akedah, that Avram sort of intuits what he's supposed to do. He's not told what to do. He's not told to get that eye or to bring it in instead of his son. He understands that's what God must have meant. He figures it out. So it's not something he's told, and that may be the goal, as I think of it that way. The goal is to allow us to intuit what is right. Because we live in, there are millions of situations we are in, there is no clear 
no one's telling us exactly what to do. It's not like what bracha do you make on a cheesecake or something like that. You know what I mean? It's, it's who knows? Life is very complicated. So to be able to get the sense of what is right, at the end of the day, we have to rely on our own intuitions and hopefully it's grounded in something which is real. Maybe that's the idea of Matzmei Baruch Hu Afi Bech. What? Since it's Shlomo's Yorkside tonight, the main teaching of the Yishma is that that's the practice of the Torah, is to reach that intuition. Right, that is the Yishma, that's very true. I do want to say yes. that I remember being at 14 all those introductions, really the introductions to the JPS, you know, the JPS, uh, you know, yeah. amazing, 33 pages. I thought that I read that this professor, maybe it was someone else, that they discuss it as a book, the bar, in the midbar, as if to say it was not divinic. So just clarify that. That divine? The bar not being divinic. Divine. No, the, the, the point is, I don't remember T.J. ever saying anything like no, that. One of the people I remember what the, what the scholars think about Sefer Devarim. The scholars. There are many scholars, you know. These, I, mean, I would say the standard way of thinking about Sefer Devarim is that it's related to the story that you have in Malachim about Yoshiyahu, which factors into Yemiel too, that we're told that Yoshiyahu, during the reign of, sometime during the reign of Yoshiyahu, they discover a scroll inside the temple. Mm -hmm. And they take the scroll to Yosho and they read it. And when they read the scroll, he's very upset because the scroll speaks of sin and terrible punishment. And the presumption <coughs> is that that scroll was safe in Zvarim. That's That presumption is fine. <coughs> and the second assumption they make is that it's not just they found it then, why did they suddenly find it then? They found it because it didn't exist before then. They found it because it was actually written around that time. That is the assumption I say of many, many of the of the scholars. Divide or not divide, I don't know. That's a separate question. What makes something divide? I don't know. Yes. Yeah, what do you want to say? It reminds me that I think it was Cyrus gives a sense that that's what going, I'm going to eat an idol. So, like, the Sefer Torah is our idol. Mm. Well, so, so I said, by the way, personally, that our idol is a book. Right. Right. There are people who object to the whole way we... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kissing the Torah. Right, so I think that... You know... That Right. The point is, the Gemara says, the Gemara says at one point, about the Babylonians, the foolish Babylonians, they stand up when they see the Torah, but they don't stand up before the people that study the Torah. So that's, you know, that's a famous statement. But the Torah is sacred to us, obviously. It's, it's, the, it's the Ark, is the holiest part of the Temple. But the question is, what makes something holy? It's holy because it brings us to God, basically. The mistake every, you know, this happens all the time, where, where, where things that are supposed to, are means to an end, become ends in themselves. This is the definition of uh, Avodah basically. What Avodah is, it's attaching to, it, to temporal things, things of permanent significance. And our human, uh, I think human beings, as human beings, we are sort of have a uh, proclivity to do that. So we have to be careful with it. But that's, I think, what Yermio is saying over here, which takes us back, I think, to the story of, of Moshe. 
It really takes us back to the story of Shmuel. Yes. Okay. Now, by the way, yeah. the idea that something which is sacred is covered. Yes. That's the reason why we cover our, our I totally agree with that. I think that Sniyot actually, the person who made that point on several occasions was Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik. Really? He saw that the covering of the person actually is related to the covering of sacred sacred things. That's a very interesting approach to Sniyot. It's, yeah. It's the. It is certainly the case of the Chumash that the objects are covered. The Chumash spends a lot of time discussing how the objects of the temple are to be covered up. Okay, so that's what that, I wanted to say something about that verse in chapter 3. And now I just wanted to, we'll be skipping around a lot, we'll also be going back to what we skipped. But there's 52 chapters in this book. If we spend a year on this, we'll have every 18 sessions or something like that. So we have 52, we can't do everything. So we wrote like calcification, right? Like, they are calcified, their, um, you know, their, their muscles. I mean, Shri, Shri Rim is also a muscle, right? Shri Rim are, Shri Rim are muscles, that is right. It's, right. it's kind of determined to do something in a forceful way. To go after Shri Rutli Bum is what you have in the Chumash. Just to find that verse that I mentioned, um, you have it in chapter is it 29 or 30 of Dvarim. Which is a very important chapter. I mean, it's so important, but we have it in chapter 30, 29 about the when they, we stand before God to enter into a covenant, and there might be somebody who says in his heart, right? Bishrirutli be a way. That's in Dvarian chapter 29, uh, verse number verse number 18. Shamot divreha Allah in they translate, I will follow my willful heart when I do myself. And yeah, I hear all the blessings, the curses, all that stuff, all the rules. Very nice, but in secret. I, he makes a determination that he's going to do something. He or, or they, that's not clear. Family could be a bunch of people. That's a Devarim word. May appear also in Devarim. Here I remember it from here, and that's what is. Yirmiyot mentions it on many occasions. I didn't count the number of times, but many times. There are many words that are phrased repeated in Yirmiyot many, many times. Twenty times, thirty times, forty times. That's his style. Okay, I wanted to take a look at a story that appears at it twice in the book of Yirmiyot. It appears in chapter seven, and then it appears later. In chapter 26, the book of Yirmiyot has, what makes it interesting among other things is that it's interwoven with his personal life. It's not a book you just have prophecy straight. It's interwoven with his personal life. There's a lot of personal information about Yirmiyot, his struggles, his difficulties. He has an incredibly difficult life. He's constantly in and out of jail, constantly. And there are different kinds of jails. We'll get to that towards the end later on. There are jails where they just put you in jail, and there are jails where they put you in jail and plan to kill you. He's in both types of jails. At one point in time, he goes to the king, they're about to kill him, and the king gives him a reprieve, and he sends him to a different jail. So that was, you know, <laughs> so that's the, that's the life he has. In any event, so there's chapter 7, and there's chapter 26. Does he mean that he himself or 
percent twice necessarily, because there is a scribe here who writes the book. No, it's not even prophesying. No, I agree with you. No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the story, we have one story in chapter seven about a prophecy. And then you have it, it repeats again later on. It's not like the same story, but in the second time, it's different information. It's given in a different part of the book with different information. The message is one that is incredibly important in the book and relates to what I just mentioned. And that is in chapter seven, if you look at chapter seven, it, we're told the following. So this is a prophecy that is given to Yermio. And the prophecy is Amod Bishar Beit Hashem. So this prophecy, he's told specifically to give this particular prophecy in the gate of God. So the gate of God, the gate of the house of God means in front of the uh, in front of the temple, which is still standing. By the way, let me make a different point, a general point about the book of Yirmiyahu, which is that the book does not seem to have any particular chronological sense to it. It's not like, say, Yechesko, who's a prophet around the same time as Yirmiyahu. But the book of Yechesko is very orderly. It, it, it's an amazing book in its own right. There's some wild stuff in it, but it's very in order. The book of Yermiyot, the prophecies of Yermiyot are constantly jumping around from one king to the next. We don't know who the kings are, how the book begins. But he's constantly moving back and forth. Sometimes it's hard to know exactly when the prophecy is given. We know this prophecy is given when there's still a temple, because he's told to stand by the gate of the temple. So that we know. Okay. So go and stand by the gate of the temple, Shar Beit Hashem, and call out these following words. Yes? How come he was exiled before the uh, intelligentsia, which went to the first wave? We're not told why he's not exiled there. That's a very good question. We know that the second wave, he was initially put in, the, like all the others, he was sent out, and then the Bukhadnezzar intervenes and gives him an option. Do you want to go to Baba? We'll take good care of you. We'll feed you there. Because he knows that Yermio has been saying not to fight, not to fight against Baba. He's also seen as a traitor for that reason. And Yermiot decides to stay with the people. And at that point, even the people that are left are the lowest of the low, the, the Talat Ta'am. He sees his mission as, we don't know when the first time, he maybe didn't want to go, maybe, who knows? Maybe he wasn't seen as that significant because he was hated by everybody else. He wasn't seen as part of this, the, the mainstream of society. He's an outsider. He's, a, he's on the margins, like prophets are. He's very much on the margins. So that could be a reason. But the second time, he's actually given a choice, and he decides to stay with the people, which is a very powerful idea, the idea of staying with the people. You know, it's people that write about the Shoah. Yanish Karshak. What? Yanish Karshak, when he say yeah. that there's right. the children. Exactly. And, right. and also uh, the uh, Esh Kodesh, basically. Yeah. The Esh Kodesh is, you know, the people that write about the Shoah, and there's a lot of critiques of some of the others who actually did not stay, they left. You know, it's hard to judge people when we're no, sitting, you know what I mean? But anyway, no, but, but, the, so but the people that are, Cars, for example, who writes about the show, well, Cars lost his whole family, so he understands. But he's extremely critical of some of these Rebbe's who have left. What he loves is the Yesh Kodesh. The Yesh Kodesh is, is, with, is with the people in every sense. I don't know if he could have left or not could have left, but he, he, he doesn't, he's not thinking of leaving, because that's where he belongs. He belongs with the people. That's Yubio, actually. Powerful. He says that these are my, I, 
he's criticizing him. The people he belongs with, he understands, are the people he's screaming at his whole life. That's what's amazing. He doesn't mention any words, but you know, he has terrible things to say about them. But at the end of the day, that's what makes this a powerful book. That's where he belongs. So over here, go to the go to the temple and call out the word of God. Listen to the word of God. Call you enter the gates to bow down to God. So one of the purposes of the temple is to bow down, apparently. To serve God and to bow down in the temple. As we say in our in our in our prayers, right? Uh, what's in the prayer? We no longer have a temple. We go up, go up to be seen and to bow down. So you see that one of the purposes of the temple was to bow down, to serve God through bowing down. So all you will come through these gates to bow down. He says, so he says, listen, mend your ways. Mend your ways, he explains, means... First of all, he says, if you mend your ways, I will dwell in this house. So there's a hope. It doesn't have to be destroyed. I will dwell in the house. That's what he says in chapter 7. And do not believe in the, in the false words that are being uttered. He repeats three times. Don't believe what the others are saying to be the prophets. Don't believe what the prophets are saying it means, what are you talking about? This is God's house. God's house will be here forever. And nothing can ever happen to God's house because God is immune from any kind of, don't believe that. Those people that say the house is in and of itself significant, what I mentioned before, that's why I started with that. Don't believe that, that the house has a kind of immunity because it's God's house. Do not think that. No, just one second. Just one second. I'm one second. But, Rather, mend your ways, he says. Mend your ways means treat people properly. Mend your ways means treat the stranger properly and the widow. Don't, don't, don't shed blood. Don't mistreat the other. If you do that, I will dwell with you. What do you think, he says? You're going to steal and rob and, and, and going to swear falsely and, and idolatry. And then you come into this house. What do you think? The house is going to protect you? He says this, right? Hamarat, verse 11. Is this house a den of thieves? What is this house? The den of thieves? Right. Now, what do you want to say, sorry? Then we'll come to the... Go ahead. No, just that Yael Ziegler makes the point that because of the whole miraculous way Sancheriv was stopped right outside the gate, you know, of right. Jerusalem in the times of his Kiyahuit. So That's right. the people really believe that God would, he could allow exile and destruction right. and all that, but his actual house would never be touched, whether they idolize the house or not. They just right. thought that, so that, that is, was the line. And right. that so was what, what made the people more, even more amenable to listening uh, to the, the VA Shekhar. That is, that's an important point. And um, others make the same point. That we have, we'll get to these things. They have to remember that there was a previous story in the time of Chizkyo, uh, where Sanchev is coming and uh, with his army, and he's making all kinds of threats. And then Chizkyo is the king and appeals to God, and then God is destroying Sanchevim, and the house is saved. And that's a story that is lies in the background. So, Yel Ziegler, many have made the same point. I'm, I was going to get to that myself, not today. That, of course, the answer to that is those are different times. 
the, 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 the status of the people during King Chizkiyot, who's held as a righteous king. That's not the same as you have with these kings, who are no good. Yoshia was good. But the rest no, of the, he's, he's, but the rest of them, <laughs> Yoyakim is a villain. Yeah, he's a real villain. And Sikiyahu is a mixed bag. At the end of the day, does the wrong things. Maybe out of weakness, we'll see. These are the kings that are the reigning kings during the time of year. So it's a good point you make. But it's a different situation. But it could be that that who works in the background. Temple was once immune. So he says, people think it can't happen. It can't happen. And now we come to the critical point of this chapter 7. This is very critical. He says, you know, you think it can't happen. Because that's our nature, to think if somebody's been around for a long time, that things are always going to be the same. That's, that's what we always assume. Things will always be the way they were. So Yermiel says, this is God's word, go to my house, which is in Shiloh. That's where I was, that was my first temple. We have to remember, we don't think of this so as much, Shiloh, which is of course the way the book of Shemur begins, and Shiloh is also mentioned in the book of in the book of, of Shoftim. Pinchas is the Kohen in Shiloh, and the end of the book is the story where they kidnap all the women, all the young dancing girls, that takes place in Shiloh. So Shiloh is the central temple. It's not like a little temple like Givon and Nov in these places. Shiloh is the central temple. The Rambam, I think, says that Shiloh existed for 370 years. So it is a central, we don't think of Shiloh as being Jerusalem. But Shiloh, that's what Yermiel says, there wasn't really a temple. Not for many, many years. And that was called Shiloh. And they also thought nothing could happen to Shiloh. But now go visit Shiloh. Go to my house in Shiloh, where Shikanti, where my name was found. Remember that in the Chumash, and especially in the book of Devarim, the temple is called the place that God has chosen, Lushaken Shemo Sham, or Lasum Shemo Sham. It's the place that God has chosen to put God's name. God's name is very significant. And God's name presumably means how God manifests in this world. So the temple is the place where God's name, in fact, sometimes the temple is called shame. The very word shame sometimes in the Bible refers to God's temple. The way God manifests in the world. It is interesting, by the way, in passing, that we look at our prayers. This is very striking, by the way. That when we talk about God in our prayers, it's fundamentally in praise of God. It's almost always the praise of God's name. It's almost never praise of God. If you look at the davening, the standard liturgy from beginning to end, the key when it comes to God you speak of God's name, and I, oh, I don't mean only in the blessing before the Shema. I mean in all the blessings. Right, right, <laughs> right. It's, it's, I was just struck me about it a couple of weeks ago, because I'm thinking a lot about prayer and about the biblical roots of prayer. That's what I actually would write, try to write, write myself about, try to write about book. That'll be the book. People talk about this a lot. I have a lot to say about this in terms of the biblical roots. And it struck me, I began to go through the sinner. And you realize that from beginning to end, not just in one place, from beginning to end, it's all about God's name. God's name, right? Whatever the name is, 
not to pronounce the name. We don't pronounce Yud Hey Vav Hey. We 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 pronounce it Aleph Dalad Mun Yud. That's a very good question. Which name of God are we are we are we praying to? I talked about that a little bit before Rosh Hashanah. Typically, it's Yud Hey Vav Hey, but the other name that we are is the, the name of God that is significant in our prayers, especially in Rosh Hashanah. As much as Yud Hey Vav Hey is the name Svaot. That's how actually we 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 introduce the Shemot Esrei. We even say it as we're about to say Shemot Esrei. The God who redeemed us is Hashem Tzvaot, those two names. Now it is true that the focus in our prayers for the most part is on Hashem. But Tzvaot is found in our prayers, such as the Kedusha. Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzvaot. It's consistent throughout, by the way. It's obvious when you think, when you see it, it's obvious. It's very little about about sanctifying God. It's much more about sanctifying God's name, which I presume means the name is how God manifests. Right. We can't know what God really is. But Moshe says, what is your name? How do you work in this world? What you... So the name of God is very important. And the temple is called the place where God's name is found. So Yermio says, the place where God's name was found, the first place, was Shiloh. You think it can't happen here. How could it be? Let me tell you something. We had a temple. And it was around for a long time. And that was the place that God chose to place God's name upon it. See what I did to Shiloh on account of the misbehaviors. So there's no guarantee, he says. And he's making this statement. He goes to the gates of the temple. Guy has guts, by the way. And by the way, you, you don't even see it so much in chapter 7. Uh, but you will see it in a moment in chapter 26. We have the same story and the response. So that's what he does. He, he tells the people, don't rely on Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem, Hechal Hashem. And your behaviors will cause this place to end up the same as Shiloh, right? Because he says in verse 14 explicitly, He says, he says two things. He says, first of all, don't count, don't rely on, don't count on the fact that you have a temple, because you can learn from the past. What I did to Shiloh, I will do here. And then he says, and don't think also you can't be exiled. Because half of course, he says, the Northern Kingdom has already been exiled. Don't think you're exempt from what happened to them. Exactly what happened to them can happen to you. So don't, that's, that's the message over here. Now, that's the end of this section. And we have no, it doesn't say anything about how the people responded to it. They hear it. This is one of his many prophecies. They tend to be very harsh. And there's no statement in chapter seven. What do the people who are going into the gates? Do they ignore this guy? It's kind of a lunatic or something. What, we've heard this before. It's not going to happen. We have our own prophets. They're going to say many things. But there's a resounding silence of, we're not told. 
And now we go to chapter 26. And what do you know? We have a, presumably it's the same story in chapter 26. But there we have a response actually in chapter 26. Uh, right, so we have over here, and here we actually, we, we have a date for this thing. It's very interesting. Yes, chapter 26, verse number one, we are told, I mentioned before that the timing, we don't, there's no real chronology in the book. Here it says, mm-hmm. so This takes place, we're told when? After the death of Yoshiahu, in the first year of his son, Yehoiakim's reign. Yehoiakim doesn't take over immediately after Yoshio's death. There's another king who I think he lasts for three months and then he's gone. And then we have Yehoiakim who's just a bad guy. And he's the son of Yoshio who's the great reformer. He's right. So in the first year, and God is commanding uh, Hashem, stand in the courtyard of the temple. Earlier it says stand in the gates, okay? Here it says the Chatzar Beit Hashem, right? and speak, Speak to those who come down to bow down. It's exactly the same language. Those who come to the temple to bow down, to be present in God's temple, tell them the following. Maybe they'll listen, says God. Who knows, right? And in verse number four, This is what Hashem is very common uh, prophetic utterance. These are the words of God. Thus says the Lord. Okay? Right? You haven't listened to my prophets. Another phrase that appears many times in Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu says about himself, God has sent many prophets before me. There's a whole tradition of prophecy. So it's not, it's not about me, he says. I'm one of the many prophets that God has sent. And God has sent it over time. Constantly sending you real prophets. So you pay no attention to them. If you don't listen, he says, I will make this house the same as Shiloh. So it's virtually identical to what we have in chapter 7. Identical. Repeat it. There are a lot of repetitions, but in this chapter, this, this section deals a lot more with the life of Yirmiyo. In this chapter, we have a response. And the response is found beginning in verse number seven. So they hear three groups of people. They're the priests. They're the prophets, false prophets, the prophets. And they people. They all hear him speaking in the house of God. <laughs> After he finished with his speech that God had commanded him to give. So the priests and the prophets and the people say, you shall surely die. It's one of the several occasions in the book where his life is truly in danger. 
remember that in the very first chapter, God said, don't worry, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to save you. When someone says, don't worry, I'm going to save you, that's when we start worrying. <laughs> save me from what? So, okay. So here they grab him, the priests and the prophets and the people. Why do you say that? Why do you make that prophecy? That can't be. And the people gather crowd about Yirmiyot. We have that expression in the Chumash with Aaron, with the golden calf. People gather right very close to you to intimidate. Here today, here it's very, uh, very aggressive, and they gather around him and they intend to motamut. You're going to die. So it says the officers of Judah, it's another group, the Sarim, the princes, the officers, members of the cabinet, the government, not the king, but the Sarim of Yehuda hear this and they go to the temple. In Petach Shar Hashem Echadash, I don't know what a chadash means over here. Maybe there's a new gate they made. I don't know. I don't know. But they gather to the same place and they say, so they're going to be involved in this conversation. What should be with this prophet who says that the house of God will be like Shiloh? This person deserves to die. The Chumash says that a prophet who gives false prophecy can be put to death. The, the Chumash, the book of Yirmiyo, I mentioned at the outset, makes many references to the parsha in Sefer Devarim about a prophet. In Sefer Devarim, there are two parshiot that deal with, with, with the Navi, two of them, chapter 12 and chapter 18. We'll get there. So there's re referencing that. He's a false prophet. So therefore, Mishpat Mavet, remember that the priests have a, have a, have a, in, the, in the book of Devarim and elsewhere, have a judicial role. They are pronouncing sentence. It hasn't been a trial, of course, but they're pronouncing sentence upon Yerbiyahu. He deserves to die. The people, yeah, the people, we, we see where the people stand. The people yeah. might be fickle, but right, the people are different. Right. Right. So, so Yerio speaks not to the Kohanim and the Vim, they're hopeless, but to the people and to the Sarim. Mm -hmm. He addresses Sarim and the people. People divided, apparently, or could be divided. He says, listen, it's not my personal opinion. It's not about me. I just say what I'm instructed to say. This is God speaking through me. So what they do to me? This is Hashem speaking through me. If you listen, God will, God will change God's mind. God will change. We have instances in the Bible where God changes God's mind, several of them, okay? So this too could be, as far as, far as I'm concerned, you can do what you want with me, he says. But let me tell you something. 
whatever you do to me, it's not going to change one truth. This is God's word. So you want to kill me? Go ahead. It's not going to change the reality. The reality is what God has spoken. The reality is, this is the prophecy. If you don't change your ways, this, this house and this city will be destroyed. That's, that's what Yermio says. Do whatever you want to be. Uh, you know what they do, but if you do that, you should know. If you do kill me, which you can do, you should know you're killing your prophet who speaks the truth. And by the way, the implicit idea is that I, since I told you to mend your ways and to do right, I don't think the first step in doing right is to kill an innocent person who happens to be God's prophet. So you take that into account. You can kill me, you have the power to. But if you do it, remember something. Every word I said is true. So the, the, the Sarim and the people, people are fickle, but the people join with the princes, the officers. No, no, they say, can't put this fellow to death. He's a prophet speaking in God's name. So now we have, you see the division amongst the people. You have different groups on opposite sides. And now we have a new group we didn't mention before. The Zikne, the Zikanim. I know where they're coming from. There's another group over here. Um, the Zikanim are saying the following. And they speak to the whole congregation. This is actually very unusual over here. Micha ha morashti, Micha the Morishtite, Hayani Babi Mechis Yomel Yuda, Vayomro Koam Yuda Remar, Koamara Shem Svon, Zion Sodete Horesh, Virushalayim Yimtiye, Vaharabayat Uvamot Yar, Micha, that's our prophet Micha, one of the Treyasa, Micha Morashti, it's Micha. In the time of Chiskiyahu, he had the following prophecy. He said, Zion will be plowed, right? Plowed as a field. Jerusalem will be a heap of ruins. And the mountain and the temple of Mount, a shrine in the woods. In other words, he said the same thing Yermio say. He said exactly what Yermio says. We remember him saying those things, Micham Morashti. Maybe they have a record of it. We'll get to that in a minute. Did Chizkiyahu kill Micha, who said exactly what Yermiyahu was saying? So this is a trial where they're citing precedents. Right, citing precedents, that's exactly. On the contrary, which is the language of the Chumash, when Moshe prays to God after the Ego, and the conclusion of that section is, So he's citing not just the presence of Chizkiyahu, He's citing the president of Moshe in the story of the golden calf. The golden calf story, Moshe prayed, entreated God, and God relented of the evil, right? And we, say the Zikadim, it is a kind of trial here. We're doing evil, we're doing the wrong thing over here. 
what I find it particularly interesting, I don't know if we have this any other place in the Bible, where they actually cite another prophet, and actually the citation of Micha is precise. It's actually word for word what Micha said. Let's just find that. This is in the so-called minor prophets, but not in chronological order. Micha is before Yermio, obviously. So the prophets themselves are in, uh, possibly the minor prophets themselves are in, are in order. But they're Yishayo, they don't relate to Yermio, Yechesko, etc. So let's find where this is. Micha, Where's Micha here? It's after Yechesko. No, it's after Yechesko, sure. It's after Amos, right. So it's on, yeah, right. Right. It's right after Yonah. Yeah, yeah, it's on page 1338. Yeah, we don't have well, you don't have a JPS, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, right, so it's right after Yonah, actually. Right. And, Hayah Dvar Hashem, Dvar Hashem Asher Hayah, El Micha HaMorashti. It's called Micha HaMorashti. That's how the book begins. So Micha has, what, how many chapters does Micha have? It has what? It has seven chapters. Micha has seven chapters. If you turn, to Micha, chapter three. You look at Micha, chapter three. I find this very interesting. So he has his prophecy: Shimuna Zot Roshay Beit Yaakov Uktine Beit Israel. He addresses himself to the rulers of the house of Jacob and the chiefs of the house of Israel, right? Bonet Zion B'Damim, those who build Zion with with blood, with crimes. Jerusalem be Avra, and Jerusalem with uh, iniquity, with sinfulness. Rachel be Shochad Yishpotu, Kohanel be Mechir Yoru, Neviel be Kesef Yixomu, Arashem Yishanu Lemar, Aro Hashem be Kibedu, Lotavo Elenu Ra'ah. It's exactly what Jeremiah says. You, he addresses the leadership. You people, you build the, build the city with blood. You mistreat people. And you say, no problem. God is with us. Here we have God's temple. That's what you say. It's exactly what Yermiel says. So Micha says, on account of you, it's actually word for word. You have a situation where one prophet quotes another prophet, or where people quote the other prophet, and it's actually a word-for-word -word citation of this prophecy. It must have been a well-known prophecy. I mean, it's very similar. I mean, I want to I'll say something which is very trivial, and maybe, and but it sort of strikes me all the time, the courage of these people. He's, a, he's not addressing, you know, the little, he addresses the leadership in, in, in language that is beyond belief. Yeah. You who build the city with blood. He's talking to people who could easily kill him, yeah. as we see in our story doesn't seem to bother him in the least. That's his mission. That, that, that's a prophet. And you have it over here in Yermio, in chapter 26, you have this exact citation. So the the elders over here are saying, listen, we have a precedent. We have Micha the Morashti. And the response of Chizkyo was not to uh, kill him. On the contrary. The response was to pray, Vayichau. And God's response to Vayichau which is exactly what you have in the Chumash with Moshe and the, uh, and the Golden Calf. So that's actually chapter 26, verse number 19. The question is, 
chapter 26 ends in verse number 20, 24. And the question is, the remainder of the chapter, what is the answer? So this is actually very interesting. How do you read verses 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24? So it doesn't, the next verse begins with the words Vigam. <coughs> Vigam, when you look at it, when you think, it sounds like, and, and also, mm -hmm. that the same people are talking. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't actually, it doesn't actually seem so when you read, the, when you read it. That's true of Yerbio in general. It's, by the way, in general, say for Yerbio, I'll make a general comment, at least as I understand it. It's often very hard to know in the book of Yerbio who is speaking. Very difficult to know. Is it, often it's hard to know if Yerbio is speaking for himself or if he speaks for God. Many times, it's, I, I can't tell actually. Maybe that's my problem. Or maybe you can't actually tell. Maybe you potentially can't tell. And we have to use our best judgment. But over here, in the context of it, it doesn't sound like the, these same people are talking. How about the narrators giving us right. a side? And you should also know, because they brought up Micha, that there was this other guy. That's right. And that narrator was speaking, but the question is, the narrator is speaking and in, in, in telling us what someone else is saying, presumably. Maybe. I don't know. Let's see. The God Isha Yabin Hashem. There was also a person who was prophesying in God's name, Uriyahu ben Shemayahu, Mirkiyat Hayorim. So Uriyahu, the son of Shemayahu, we never heard of this fellow before, prophet named Uriyahu. It's interesting, he's from Kiryat Yarim, because Kiryat Yarim is the place where the ark resided for many, many years. Striking. And there was this other prophet named Uriyahu, and you know what? He said exactly what, what Micha said and what Yermiyahu said. In other words, two precedents are being cited over here of prophets who said the same thing that Yermiyahu was saying now. In the first instance, it's Micha, who prophesied at the time of Chizkiyahu. But now we have another story of another prophet whose name was Uriyahu from Kiryat Yarim, and he prophesied identically to Yerbiyam. Vayishmach ha-melech Yehoyakim, v'chol giborov, v'chol ha-sorim et devarov, vayevakesh ha-melech ha-mito. And when the king, the king has not been mentioned in all these, we have the officers, we have the priests, we have the prophets, we have the people, we have the elders, no mention of the king. And now we have the king, and um, the, the chapter began, this is the first year of King Yehoiakim, so it's very hard to know that this happened in the, Yehoiakim's only been king for one year. Is this a story that took place during the first year, which would mean that basically the same time? Or is the narrator saying, by the way, there was another guy who was, who was prophesying during the reign of Yehoiakim, maybe later, because this is the first year of his reign, and let me tell you what happened to the other fellow. His name is Uriyahu. And when he prophesied, the king heard about the prophecy. And by Yishma Melech, Yehoiakim, Bechol Giborov, Bechol Hasarim, et Tvarav. In that instance, Yehoiakim and the strong men, princes, by Yivakesh HaMelech, and the king desired to kill him. 
king desired to kill him. Vayishma Uriyahu Vayira Vayivrach Vayavo Mitzrayim. And Uriyahu found out the king wants to kill him, and he ran off to Mitzrayim to be safe. He ran to Egypt. Vayishrach Hamelech Yehoyakim Anoshim Mitzrayim. And the king, Yehoyakim, sent people down to Egypt. At El Natan Ben Achbar, Vanashimito, El Mitzrayim. So Yehoyakim sends this El Natan down to Egypt. Extradited him. Extradited him. And they took him out of Egypt. They took him out of Egypt. And they brought him to the king, and the king killed him. He killed this Uriyahu. And he threw his body into the burial place of the people, the common people. Achyan Achikam ben Shafan Haita et Yemio, the Vilti Taito to Biada Amlamito. But in this instance, Achikam, the son of Shafan, was with Jeremiah, with Yemio, and he didn't hand Yemio over to the to the people. So I have two more minutes here, still? Five. Five minutes, okay. So me, is opposing the president. Right. So you have over here. So it's not clear, actually. In other words, it's a, the narrator is telling us over here, don't believe that Yermiel is okay. In other words, it is true that some advance the claim that Micha, the prophet Micha, said exactly what Yermiel said. They cite him word for word. And Chizkiel, the king, didn't do anything. But the problem is, Chizkiel is not the king. The king is a true villain, one of the worst, actually. Oh, Yakim is just a bad guy all the way through. And we have in a similar case, a prophet who said the same thing as Yirmiyahu, and the king sent, he runs down to Egypt, and Yehoyakim sends his uh, men down to Mitzrayim to extradite, to take him back, and they kill him, and they throw him in a, in a common grave. Which suggests to us, by the way, parenthetically, another interesting question in the book, which is very important, that he's able to do this, presumably, he can't do this without the permission of the of the, of the Egyptian authorities. In case we walked out to Mitzrayim, it, it takes a... So apparently, it suggests to us that at this point, that Egypt and Yehoiakim are in are, are, are in league with each other. This is a very important question in the whole book, because remember, talking about the land of Israel, we are surrounded by very powerful nations. We're not the main force. You have to the, you have Egypt to the south. You have either the Assyrians in the beginning or the Babylonians. Of, of North, so there's always the political piece to this. Now, what's interesting is who actually saves your BO? I don't know. We don't know what they know or not. We don't know what he knows. Um, we don't know what he knows. I will say that the sense you have of your BO in this book is it doesn't matter to him, actually. He doesn't care. He says straight up, You can kill me. And maybe he knows. It's also very possible that this event took place later, actually. Because remember, Yermiel is prophesying the first year of Yehoiakim's reign. So unless Uriel was in the first year, it goes that all this happened already, it must be the narrator telling us about other things. In other words, it's telling us the story, which means Yermiel is not necessarily safe, despite the fact that the Sarim advanced this argument. But it doesn't mean that the king, at the end of the day, who's brought into the end of the story, who has a lot of power, the king himself, 
doesn't necessarily have to listen to the people. And there's another story in the book, and I want to make one final tiny point. There's another story in the book, very important story that we'll get to, I don't know when, about the king. And that is, just give me, give me two minutes. The story later on, maybe don't discuss this now, but the story later on is that Yirmiyot is in jail, or he's often in jail, and he has a scribe in Baruch. Baruch is a scribe. He's in jail and he dictates to Baruch a set of prophecies. What those prophecies are, we'll discuss someday. But he dictates prophecies of doom, of warning. And Baruch writes them all down and he starts to read them to different people. And when the people hear them, they're very frightened. They're very, very frightened. At the end of the day, they tell others and finally they instruct, they bring it to the king who's in his winter palace. And when the king is, has the fire burning, the fire is the fire. And when they read this, this safer that Yermio has written, he tears off two, three pages at a time and he throws it into the fire. And there you see, but, and the people around say, don't do that, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. But the king and his entourage don't listen. So you see in that story straight up that many of the, there's a lot of internal dis, discord, dispute. So the king is another story. The king doesn't actually care. So we'll tell, maybe the book is telling us, the narrator, that it may be true about the Sarim and all these others, but the king has a different way of thinking. And actually, Yermio is saved by somebody. Who was he saved by? We'll end with this note. The father of Gedalia. Exactly. Achikam ben Shafan. Achikam ben Shafan is the father of, 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 uh, of Gedalia. Ben, uh, Gedalia. So that's Gedalia. That's the end of the book. And Gedalia actually, Tom Gedalia, right? Is the, after this destruction, he's appointed by the king, by, by, by Nebuchadnezzar, to reign over the land, and Nebuchadnezzar guarantees safety for the people. And Yermio, who could have gone to Babel, he doesn't go. And he's summoned by, he's summoned by Gedalia, actually. He's a friend of, the friends of the family. And Yermio says, everybody, stay here in the land, and the Jews from the other lands coming also. It's like, could be a restoration of, oh, the poor people, but it could be a restoration. And of course, Gadari is then assassinated. That's, an interest, that's the end of the book. But here when you have, really see straight up, that in terms of the different factions, that Gadari's father, Achikam and, and Shafan also, they're in, in, they're, 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 they, they side with, with and protect your, your Miyav. Also, we don't know yeah. at the end whether that the Kohanim and the Medium were persuaded. We know the Sarim and the exactly. Ram and the Zeknesra, exactly. but we still have we the don't Kohanim know. and the we do know one thing, and I'll just end with this. We certainly know that in this book, the Kohanim and the Nevi'im are two of the main problems. The Kohanim want to kill Yermio. Who's the Kohanim? Right, they are. Yermio himself is a, he complains at one point. It's a very human book. He gets very angry. They take your vengeance against them. Those are the fellow priests. And we know that, as I said in the very beginning, that Nevi'im is a theme of this whole book. False prophets, true prophets, what makes someone, how do you know if someone's a false prophet? That will come up in our study. Okay, so we'll stop here then, and next week we'll continue with, figure out where we go with this. The goal is to finish Yermio over the course of the year. I think there are 18 sessions, something like that. Right, to see if we can basically get all the main points of the book. Okay, stop here then.